you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. And yeah, if you need a tune-up or a major overhaul, whatever it is you need in the way of your work, or if you're pretty happy with where you are, you just want to make sure you're on the right track, you know, that's okay too. A lot of times when we talk to people for the first time, they assume that anybody who is listening to 48 Days Online Radio or reading 48 Days to the Work You Love or No More Mondays, that they're going to make a change, that the sole purpose is to stop what you're doing and do something else. That is not the case. I hope that there are lots of people listening who, in fact, enjoy what you're doing now. I mean, we need affirmation that we made some right decisions and that this really is a fit. I mean, I know that's true, but we also know 70% of Americans say they would change their jobs if they could or they knew how. Now, we know that things are really volatile right now. I mean, the average job only lasts about 2.2 years. Those in their 20s, the average job is 13 months. So there's a lot of change. That doesn't mean that you're starting over every time there's a change. There ought to be things in your life that provide a sense of continuity, something that acts as a compass, things you know about yourself. Dr. Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says the only way we can handle change is to know it's changeless about ourselves. So there ought to be things you know about yourself that are changeless Things that are going to stay the same, even as jobs come and go, businesses, careers come and go, which they inevitably will. That's okay. But that doesn't mean that you go back and start over. You're a different person at 30 than you were at 20. You're a different person at 50 than you were at 35. So this is a continuing process of figuring out who we are, what kind of work really is a good fit for us. Plus taking advantage of the new opportunities. I mean, work changes, work models that were effective five years ago are no longer effective today. You know, we used to hear said a lot that if you keep doing what you've always been doing, you'll continue to get what you've always got. You know, that isn't even true anymore. If you continue doing what you've always done, you're falling behind every day. You're digging a hole. If you aren't changing, if you're doing the same thing you were doing a year ago, you're falling behind. Now that's not to put the fear of God in anybody. It's just a reminder of the way things are changing. And the only way that we stay current, even to maintain our current position is to change and improve. So we're going to be looking at ways to change and improve. This is Dan Miller on 48 days online radio, where each week we unpack some of the questions that you, the listeners submit. If you've got a question, you can go to 48 days.com website Just click on the podcast link and you'll be able to shoot us your question there. Be happy to include some of those. You know, it's kind of a theme today. I want to use this saying, just just keep this in mind. I'll come back to and explain it in a little bit. How could you expect to lead an ordinary life? I'll tell you why when we get to our quotation here in just a second. Here's some of the questions we're going to be covering today. What would you recommend to someone who's trying for the very first time to think like a big picture entrepreneur? All right, so you've been holed up in a cubicle for 20 years, and now you want to expand your wings. You want to get out of there. You're no longer going to be a parakeet. You're going to be an eagle. What do you do? 
Dan, the only type of jobs that I've been able to get are sales jobs, and I've failed in all of those. I'm just a nice guy with no path. Ooh, ouch. Somebody says, Dan, I'm wondering if there's a way to monetize my passion, or does it need to just stay a hobby? Sometimes I get worn out from doing too much at once. Should I simplify my business or my life so it's not so chaotic? Now, there's an interesting dichotomy. Should I simplify my life or my business? Well, we'll talk about that, how to approach that. Now, one of the classic movies out there that Joanna and I love to watch, we usually watch it once a year when we're putting up Christmas decorations, and it's not Christmas time, but I thought of it recently. That's the movie Little Women. Now, it's just one of the old classic movies, but it, it just, you know, the dad has gone off to war and the girls are home and trying to survive on their own. And Winona Ryder, who plays the character Joe, is kind of the main character in the movie. She's, you know, real creative. She's an energetic young woman. And she finds it pretty difficult to do just the normal things in that town and culture. Now, fortunately, she has a pretty insightful and understanding mother played by, let's see, who was that? Susan Sarandon. So after having just rejected a marriage proposal from a longtime boyfriend, Joe verbalizes her exasperation with herself. She says, there's something wrong with me. I'll never fit in anywhere. She knows she's different. She's having a hard time with small town values and just doing the kind of things that other people expect her to do. You know, they all expect her. She just ought to marry one of the nice young boys from town, settle down, get married, have three kids and a picket fence. And she just is bursting at the seams. Well, her mother, after Joe says, there's something wrong with me, I'll never fit in anywhere. Her mother says, Joe, you have so many extraordinary gifts. How could you expect to lead an ordinary life? Now, I trust that all of you had mothers so understanding what a great perspective. You have so many extraordinary gifts. How could you expect to lead an ordinary life? So if you're struggling with leading an ordinary life, maybe it's because you have such extraordinary gifts. You weren't designed to lead an ordinary life. There's a whole lot of pressures in our culture to be ordinary, to just do the same things. And it starts really early. You know, there is a group of women who meet here in the sanctuary where I have my office on Wednesdays and they have an art class. Well, my daughter, Ashley, usually brings her little girl, Clara, my granddaughter, four years old with her. The ladies love having Clara in there. Now, here's an example why. They were just telling me this a few minutes ago. Clara draws, so she puts a mouse in her picture. She stands back and says, that is great. That's a beautiful mouse. I really love that mouse. I really did a good job. You know what the adults say? They draw something, they stand back and say, oh, wow, that's, that's not really good enough. I, I need to redo that. That, I mean, that doesn't even look like a mouse. They second guess themselves. They tear their own work down. What happens in between the time we're four years old where we believe we can do anything and the time we're 40 years old and we start to doubt everything and assume that we really can't do anything extraordinary? Well, interesting challenge. Well, we've got some events coming up here. I know you already know about them. We've got the next event we've got coming up at the sanctuary, our converted barn here in our property in Franklin, Tennessee. The next one is right to the bank where we work with people who want to be writers. 
just yesterday I was talking with uh, Mike Hyatt, uh, chairman of the board of Thomas Nelson, the biggest Christian publisher in the world right here in Tennessee. He said that somebody told him recently from one of the publishing companies that there are 4 million manuscripts in closets and desk drawers in America, people who have written them and don't know what to do with them. 4 million. We're told that 81% of all Americans have a book inside them. They want to write a book. Well, our quest here is to help you know what to do with that to get out there and do something with it. It's not to keep it in a desk drawer and it's not to just wring your hands, hoping that a publisher comes knocking on your door. There's a whole lot of ways you can turn your writing. If it really does have some valuable information there or a valuable story, I mean, there's a lot of ways to write, but if it has something valuable there, there are a whole lot of ways to put legs on that. One of the things that I do at Write to the bank is go through 10 different ways to take your writing and produce $100,000, 10 different ways. Now, just having a book, obviously, is one. But if you, you can turn it into a workshop or a seminar, you can have a membership group, you can do audio products, you can do an instructional manual. We're gonna, we show you all those different kind of ways, and these are real things you can do. The numbers are reasonable. You can plug in whatever numbers you want to work toward and then choose as many of those things as you want to. So... That's what we do at Right to the Bank. Then we got Coaching with Excellence, some other events, we have open houses, we have author tours that come through here. We got a couple of new young authors that we're going to have stop here as part of their book signing. You know, the old days of just having book signings and bookstores are pretty much a thing of the past. I mean, how do you get people to come into a place where they know they're going to pay full retail for a product? and probably a place that they don't normally visit anyway. What if we, instead of doing that, had authors show up at places like our barn out in the country? I mean, we had an event here last year with the young author, Chris Gilbu, who wrote the book, The Art of Nonconformity. Had it on a November night. It was kind of risky, but we just put the word out, and we had hundred, about 180 people show up. So we did it outside. We don't have that much room inside for people. We did it outside at a bonfire. Just had a full moon. It was just a spectacular evening, but we do lots of things like that. Check out the live events, 48days.com for a lot of upcoming things we've got going on here. Now I talked about extraordinary gifts and we talk about people that have extraordinary talent. I want to talk about that a little bit though, in light of something that I've seen happening a lot recently. And that is this. I frankly, I've been dumbfounded recently by running into several longtime acquaintances who are down on their luck. And I mean, I'm talking really down on their luck. These are, these are guys who were used to going first class all the way. I mean, first class restaurants, cars, private flights, yachts, houses, condominiums on a beach. I mean, I talked to one recently, told me he's been selling his clothes on eBay to pay rent on a little one bedroom apartment that he's got parked his car because he can't afford gas, eating at McDonald's. And I'm thinking, well, how in the world can somebody who has been up so far get down and then stay there? See, my assumption always is if somebody has ever been up, they know how to get there. So if they hit a rough spot in the road and they go down, which can happen, then they'll just bounce right back up. But now I'm seeing that doesn't always happen. I mean, why would a guy who has been at the top of the game, 
get trapped in a down position and seem to stay there. Now, I did a little research, and I'm just trying to understand this. And you all can send me notes, give me some input to help me understand it better. But I, I started asking, studying to see if there were any common factors. Pulled an old John Maxwell book off the shelf titled Talent is Never Enough. Hadn't read that in a while, but in that John says, a person's talent allows them to stand out, but their wrong choices make them sit down. Now, another thing that, that we've seen a lot, and I won't go deep into this because it's, it, it's just horrendous to even think about, but I could name 10 people right now who in the last six months have committed some kind of indiscretion in their marriage or otherwise, you know, who've been found with prostitutes. I'm thinking, how in the world would somebody who's been on top risk everything for that kind of momentary pleasure? I find it hard to understand. When I look at my own marriage, I mean, it's like gold bullion in the bank. I mean, I don't know what it would take I mean, there are temptations for all of us, but I, I can't imagine something being appealing enough to risk the value of what I've got in the bank based on years of faithful commitment and emotional deposits in my marriage. I don't want to risk that. When I see somebody throw that away, like, are you kidding me? Well, there are people that do who seem to be on the top and self-sabotage this is not always a matter of just circumstances but things that seem people that seem to just self-sabotage and what happens is well in john maxwell's book talent is never enough he talks about talent is enough to get it to the top but it won't keep you there and it takes character integrity positive relationships those are the things that are the support beams to keep you on top even if you have talent So my encouragement is make sure that you are making deposits of success in all those other areas of your life, not just in the one that people know you for because you've got amazing talent, whether that's as an athlete or as a financial manager or as a business guy or as a coach or a speaker, musician, whatever it happens to be. I mean, that's great. You've got talent, but don't expect your talent to keep you at the top unless you're making deposits of success in those other foundational areas of your life, like integrity, character, positive relationships. You are letting yourself be vulnerable. Don't risk it all because you haven't done that. Well, now, now also uh, before I move on, I have to, I think, make a disclaimer I mean, don't, don't assume that I'm implying that everyone who's down is lacking in character and integrity. I know there's a whole lot of reasons for positions at any given time. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are down now who are going to come back. It's just going to take a little more time. I've just simply been researching to find ways to be more helpful as a friend, because it's really caught me off guard to have some of these guys contact me and let me know their current situation. Well, speaking of, speaking of talent, I watched a PBS special the other night on the music of David Foster. Now, as a host asked him about his early years in music, one of his responses just kind of jumped out at me. You know, David talked about how he loved music as a child and his parents allowed him to take lessons in classical music. But then he said, I was good, but not great. 
He went on to explain that if he had been a better musician, he would have likely ended up as an anonymous face in some orchestra. So he could have been first violin in some orchestra and we would have never heard of him. But not being that good forced him to look for other ways to be involved in music. So now he writes and produces for other musicians. I mean, we, we hear reference to his songs all the time and you hear his songs through the voices of people like Celine Dion and Barbara Streisand and Andrew Bocelli, Josh Groban, late Whitney Houston, Gally Madonna, Michael Bublé, Boss Skaggs. Who did I hear? The little gal, uh, uh, Jackie, the Jackie Ivanko, I think it is. We were listening to her the other day in the car and I said, that has got to be a David Foster song. And so I used um, Shazam on my, on my phone, one of the coolest little apps ever. Just flipped it on and sure enough, it was a David Foster song. Now, let me just expand on this a little bit. This is kind of an a, a interesting point that I think will encourage a whole lot of us. Because David Foster said he is great because he wasn't that great as a musician. And so he kind of took a sideline position in music and helped a whole lot of other people become famous. But they're all singing his songs and his arrangements, which put him on the top of the pack in a different way. And you don't hear albums by David Foster. He wasn't so prideful that the only people he allowed to do his music was himself. No, he writes great songs and it's, oh, wow, Celine Dion would be great for this song. So he hands it off to her and she, in fact, makes it great. In the book, The Millionaire Mind, Thomas Stanley looked at the common characteristics of people who have ended up extremely wealthy. Their average GPA is 2.7. Now, why is it that all the 4.0 students don't become wildly successful? Well, again, like David Foster kind of unpacked here, maybe their greatness came too easily and they missed the benefits of the struggle. If greatness hasn't come easily for you, you are you just going to give up the pursuit, settle for mediocrity, or have you looked for maybe alternative approaches for success anyway? Now, here's an example of that. We know that in the last 10, 15 years, we've told a whole lot of college kids, you got to get into computer science. You know, that's where the opportunities are. Well, there's a whole lot of people who may be more right brained than left brain. They're more artistic, creative. They don't really have a good fit for that. So they've tried to make themselves do well in computer programming and technology. What if some of those people decided, you know what? There's a whole lot of people who are now, instead of being outside working on the farm, using a whole lot of different muscles every day. Now they're sitting in a computer chair looking at the screen all day long. You know what happens to those people's back, neck, and shoulder muscles? Geez, I mean, mine are getting tight just thinking about it. Well, that's why we've had in the last six years quadrupling the number of massage therapists. So there are people who say, well, okay, I don't want to be in computers. I know that's a hot trend, but what is that trend going to create that may open up a new opportunity? And that's a whole lot of people see new opportunities. I got a friend here in, in Nashville who she's not a computer geek at all, but again, just recognizing the frustration that she has with computers, she created a little red panic button and that's all it is. It just fits over any key on your computer. It doesn't do anything. It has no function. It's a little piece of plastic, but it's red and it says panic on it. 
So it's a cute little novelty thing. She's sold over 150,000 of those at a dollar a piece. Now they probably cost three cents to produce. How would you like to have an idea like that? I mean, she sold recently, she told me 20 of them to a convent where they bought the panic buttons so all the nuns could have one on their computer because they thought it was a cute thing. Well, look for opportunities that are in alignment with the big trends, even if it's not right there. I mean, if you, if you love the NBA and you're five feet four, you're probably not going to play with Kobe Bryant and Lynn, the others out there who are hot basketball stars. Does that mean you can't do anything? No, you may discover an opportunity that's aligned with your interest in the NBA where you can have extraordinary success. Be confident you can find opportunities like that. Well, this is Dan Miller, 48 Days Online Radio. We're here every week giving you some tips, unpacking the questions that you, the listeners, submit. If you got a question, you can go to the podcast link at 48days.com. Give us your question. Be happy to scan that in as a possibility for an upcoming show. Well, Chris from Baghdad, Iraq says, Dan, I've been in the Navy for 22 years. My most recent training experience is supply logistics, budgeting, and sustainment. I returned to the U.S. in October of 2012 and will retire almost immediately in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm almost certain that I can quickly land a government job with great income, but that will most likely mirror what I'm doing now. The thought of landing a job where my competency is determined by the quality of my PowerPoint terrifies me. I'm ready to ditch the desk and keyboard for something more me and more socially interactive. If I didn't need to pay the mortgage, I'd ride my bicycle, build a boat, run a marathon, hike a trail, catch some fish while listening to you and Dave Ramsey. I thought about life coaching, but I feel I need one myself. Your wisdom is appreciated, Chris. Well, a couple of things. If you thought about life coaching, you may in fact be a great candidate to be a coach for others based on your experience. And it doesn't mean that you don't need any coaching yourself. Good coaches continue to get coaching. I mean, I get coaching on all kinds of areas. Anytime I see an area in my life where I want a little more improvement, I get a coach. I mean, that comes after years and years of coaching others. So it's not like you get to be so good, so knowledgeable, so perfect in every way that now you're a coach for others. No, you can coach as you learn more and more about coaching. The people that come to our coach with coaching with excellence conferences are not perfect coaches. They're learning. So they continue to come to these. I go to coaching conferences so I can then add more content and value to our coaching with excellence events. So that's not out of the question to do that. Now, a little more specifically to your question, you're terrified that you may get a job that's determined by the quality of your PowerPoint presentation. So, well, that's, that's funny. I understand that totally. And you say that, if you didn't have to pay the mortgage, you ride a bicycle, build a boat, run a marathon, hike a trail, catch some fish. I encourage you to start with those things. Don't be afraid. Now, if you've been in the Navy for 22 years, I mean, you know things that are very regimented, very planned out. Everybody does it exactly the same way. By golly, you better do it like this. So you may have to stretch yourself to break that kind of thinking. But I encourage you to start with exactly what you're describing here. If you want to ride a bicycle, my son, Kevin, who is now, Kevin is 41, but 
He raced bicycles up until just a couple years ago. Started when he was 10 years old with bicycle motocross, and he was just a natural for it. Just a great fit. Just the great athletic build to be good in that. He then went on to road racing, lived in Europe for several years, raced on the Dutch national team there. Now, he was doing this, I mean, full-time. That's what he did. But because he was so good, if he wanted a new Reglemond frame or a Trek frame or whatever, it was supplied for him instantly because any manufacturer would be happy to have him riding their frame. I mean, that's how they get bragging rights. So he could get a $4,000 bike instantly, no cost him, all the supplies to go with it. He could get any kind of handlebars, you know, tires and wheels and gloves and helmets, nutrition bars, sports drinks, hotel stays, restaurant coupons. And then, I mean, he had everything taken care of in terms of everything that he needed. Plus then he would keep his own winnings. So if he went out on a weekend, you know, he may win eight, $900. I mean, he did, that's what he did. I mean, I wasn't supporting him. He was making his own way, but he did that from the time he was about 17 until he was, well, actually till till I guess he was about 37. So for a long stint in there, that's exactly what he did. That's not totally out of the question to be able to do that. Now, if you've been in the Navy for 22 years, I suspect your age is a little against you in terms of uh, riding bikes for a living. Uh, build a boat. I mean, we, I just recently talked about one of the members of 48days.net. His name is Seth Bohr. I, I was afraid my mind was going to go blank, but it's Seth Bohr. I remember his name. He is starting a wooden boat tour company in Portland, Portland, Oregon, Portland or Seattle one, but it's up there somewhere. And he put that out on Kickstarter. Kickstarter is a way to, to raise funds for your business. He did that surpassed the money that he needed to start his business. I made a little contribution. A whole lot of other people did. He started his business that way. So he's building these wooden boats and given wooden boat tours on the river. There where he lives, which I think is just a really cool idea. I mean, the things that you talk about here on first glance are going to be seen by others and perhaps yourself as being impractical and unrealistic. That's okay. All you need to do is create a plan. I mean, we talk about a lot here. If you can find a way to engage your passion, your talent, a way to make a contribution, then all you have to do is figure out what's your economic model. How can you make that make money. And there's a whole lot of ways to do that. So, so go ahead and start with those things. Don't think that you're trapped in some cubicle somewhere just because that's been your experience in the military. Now's a great time to look at what are the new options out there. You've got some great life experience behind you. You could combine coaching with some of the things that you mentioned here and probably accomplish anything you want to income wise. Eric from Chicago says your podcast has been an absolute inspiration to me. Um, I'm finding it difficult to wait a full week for a new podcast. I'm a high CS on the disc profile. I'm very excited about starting my own small coaching business using the disc model as my basis. What would you recommend to someone who's trying for the first time in his life to think like a big picture entrepreneur yet who is so analytically minded that his primary goal as a new member of the 48 days community was to draw attention to a prominent misspelling of eaglepreneur something that Ashley, my daughter stated that nobody else had ever noticed. All right. I don't, I don't know about that incident, but thanks for pointing that out. We're happy to 
correct anything that's out there if it needed needs to be done. As to your question, you want to coach and you're a high CS. Now let's just hit this head on. As a high CS, your biggest challenge is going to be the marketing required. As a high CS, you are probably a very nurturing, compassionate, good listener, understanding, great coaching, counseling skills when you are face-to-face with somebody or have them on the phone in a coaching engagement. However, it may make you nauseous to think about the marketing required. You know, can you go out, can you go out here and give a presentation to the local chamber of commerce or to one of the rotary clubs in your community, you know, about the changes in the workplace and how we can adapt to that. And incidentally, you're a coach. I mean, those are the kind of things you need to be willing to do. So you fill your schedule as a coach. So I would think the biggest challenge is going to be for you. How are you going to market? Because being high in S and C low in D and I D and I are the outgoing gregarious social marketing, make it happen, kill something, drag it home to use Ramsey's terminology. I mean that those are the things that you do as a DI. If you do not have those skills and you have to put in place, what are you going to do to make sure that your marketing is getting handled? Now you can go to the 48 days.com site, click on worksheets, go down, you'll see 48 marketing tips 48 ways to fill your schedule as a coach. You don't need to do all of them, but you need to figure out what are the four or five that you're going to do with excellence and consistently. That's the way to get started as a coach. This comes from Alan who says, Dan, love your book and podcast. I'm a postdoctorate researcher currently working in a national laboratory. I enjoy the technical part of my work. I'm hoping to continue working in this field long-term wise. My boss is sharp and experienced, but he's also someone very negative toward his workers and colleagues. I try to follow yours and Dave Ramsey's teaching to love and take pride in my work. Now he goes on this pretty lengthy email. I'm going to give a synopsis here. So he's in a postdoctorate research position with an antagonistic boss, but he's afraid that if he leaves, his boss will give him a poor recommendation as he's done to some others. So he feels kind of trapped in that. What should he do? Alan, here's my recommendation. Establish a timeline to be gone, to be out of this negative environment, either by reaching the end of the project that you're working on or by you just choosing to move on to something yourself, more positive. Usually if you are in in postdoc research, it's not an open-ended kind of employment. It's usually going to be based on a project or task. So if you know that this is going to be completed in September of this year, as an example, then it probably makes sense to just see the light at the end of the tunnel, but just stay there, make the best of it, stay there because it would not be wise to just pull the plug midstream like that. On the other hand, if this is an ongoing kind of assignment and it doesn't look like there's any change coming in sight, then you create the transition. You can be very professional about it. You can give them two months notice if they need that and tell them that you're moving on, but you need to take the initiative to be moving out of this. Your current boss's reference is not the most important thing in you moving on. I mean, that's really not a big deal. People are going to ask to talk to your current boss only after they've already decided they want to bring you on as a team member. I mean, that's the way that it works. I mean, trust me on that. They don't go talking to your supervisor, 
you know, as in the initial part of the interview, they're going to interview you maybe two or three times and decide, yeah, they really want you. And then just as an afterthought is the way people usually handle references. Well, yeah, they've got some references here. They need to, you don't even need to put that guy down as a reference. If they need to, uh, if they, if they take the initiative enough to go scratching and figure out where you work and who your boss is, that's fine. But chances are really slim. They're going to do that. So having him, even if he's not willing to give you a positive reference is really not a big piece of the puzzle and moving forward at all. Well, Jen from uh, Minnesota says, Dan, what are your favorite podcasts? I want to be launched to the stars, learn from the best. You inspire the world. And I would love to know who inspires you. I use podcasts to grow, think, dream, gain ideas for goals while exercising on my one hour commutes. Your podcast is my favorite, is savored each week. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jen, for your sweet note. I know that you are out there making it happen with all the things that you're doing. Jen just wrote a book, Live Beyond Awesome. And it's a really inspirational little book about her own uh, challenges and getting through some obstacles, some perceived obstacles, and ended up doing a, a an Ironman triathlon, as I recall. But anyway, it was a very rigorous process and she was able to get through to have those bragging rights. Yes, I did the Iron Man, which is really cool. Okay. What podcast do I listen to now? Keep in mind, I'm a reader. I'm a visual learner. I love to read because I can read, you know, twice as fast as what somebody's going to speak in a podcast. Now I continue to get people sending me notes. I, I comment on this once in a while and people tell me, well, I listen to your podcast at double the speed. Now, if you can do that and not lose your sanity, um, more power to you. Uh, I don't enjoy that, but all said and done, no matter what, what the method I enjoy reading more than I do listening. Now, that being said, I spend time on the treadmill every morning. And with that, it's uncomfortable to read. I've tried that, but it really doesn't work very well. The book bounces around unless I go at a very slow pace. It doesn't work very well. So I listen, but here's some of the things I listen to. Now, a lot of these are just based on our 48 days community, but I listen to the Dave Ramsey entree leadership podcast. I mean, I was recently interviewed on there about mission statements. I think it was segment number 10 in their podcast. I was writing between Tony Dungy and Jim Collins who wrote built to last good to great. So I listen to that whenever they do that. I listen to the No More Mondays podcast, again, based on my book, No More Mondays, but uh, um, Justin Lucas Savage and Andy Traub, who are on our advisory team at 48days.net, they do that. I listen to that. They have great business advice on there, how to handle technology things. I listen to Cliff Ravenscraft, who's my podcast coach, Cliff Ravenscraft, podcast answer man. I listen to his selected ones. He has, he does a good job of telling you what's in it. And if it's something content wise that I'm interested in, I listen to those. He it's full of content value, hardcore hitting things. And so if the topic interests me, I listen to those. Sometimes I listen to Todd Henry. He wrote a book called accidental creative. That's his podcast, accidental creative. He does short interviews with a lot of people. So I listen to that frequently, just scan through and listen to two or three of those. Cause they tend to be pretty short. Mike Hyatt, who has one of the most widely read blogs in the world, just started a podcast. He, Mike actually came out to the sanctuary here, spent an afternoon here and looked at all my equipment, connected with Cliff Ravenscraft, got his equipment, 
just started producing his own podcast. The first one was 10 tips for increasing your, your blog traffic. A great podcast. Now I also, now sometimes I listen to these just because I uh, listen. I don't mind if I'm not watching the screen. I listen to the Ted talks T E D. I mean, there are, those are 18 minutes long. Now it doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump or Bill Gates or Bill Clinton, they're 18 minutes long. So they're, they're short and sweet packed with information. This morning I listened to one by Elizabeth Gilbert, who's the author of eat, love, pray. And she talked about the challenges of artistic people when once they've had a big success, then the whole world expects they'll never do anything again as successful. I mean, where do you go from there? If you're 35 years old and you assume your biggest success is already behind you, I mean, what keeps you motivated? I mean, I, I see that sometimes in like country music stars who peak too quickly. I, I'm concerned about people like Taylor Swift who, you know, 19 years old is entertainer of the year. I mean, what are you going to do beyond that? It's the highest honor that can be bestowed on somebody and she gets it at 19. What are you going to do then? Well, Elizabeth talked about that and handled it really well. So I listened to that a lot, but there, there's a lot of content out there. I use Stitcher radio. Incidentally, you can find 48 days there. A lot of you listen to, to this podcast through Stitcher. Uh, that's what I use and I can scan through very quickly find a whole lot of content and just decide, is that something that in fact I want to listen to? Okay. Let the Arthur from Spokane, Washington. Dan, I appreciate your message. I have, however, a hard time making it work. I went through your 48 days book, got stuck where you said to write to 20 or 30 companies where I would want to work. I can't think of any that I would be excited to go to work for. The only type of jobs that I've been able to get are sales jobs insurance agent, et cetera. But I failed at all those after 20 years in the workplace. I'm just a nice guy with no path. Been unemployed now for almost a year. Any thoughts to turn my situation around? Yes. Yes. Arthur. Yes, yes, yes. If you have sales skills, I mean, if you have any level of sales skills, that is the most highly transferable skill area you could possibly have. If you were in insurance, you can get in medical sales. You can get in construction supplies. You can, I mean, you can do all kinds of things with that. However, here's the, however, selling true selling is simply sharing enthusiasm. You sell something well that you really are excited about. You don't sell just because you can talk somebody into getting something. I mean, that's a very old model of selling where people were just good at conning or manipulating people into things they didn't want or need. Well, today people unwind those kind of deals. They've got three days to unwind and you can sell 14 cars on Saturday and Monday have three deals left in the queue because all the other people unwound because they just felt like you pressured them into getting it. I mean, that's not what we're talking about, but if you have any affinity, any fit for sales sales at all, then my encouragement is, Find something you're excited about. Find something that you would want your next door neighbor to have. Find something you believe in so much. You want your cousin to make sure that they have it so they don't miss out. If you do that, then I think selling is going to be a good fit for you. Now, when you describe that you kind of don't know what direction to go, and of course it concerns me that you've been unemployed for a year. I mean, that just tells me how you really haven't figured out what it is you want to do because if you really figure out what you want to do, 
That's where we get boldness, confidence, enthusiasm, and you go out and make yourself a great candidate and people say, wow, I want him on my team. And I talked a couple of weeks ago about a young 17 year old son of a coaching client of mine. And he worked in a food lion down in, down on Amelia Island in Florida. They announced they were going to close the store 10 days. They told this level employee, they were going to close the store 10 days from then their job would be gone. The 17 year old created a one page form and he asked customers coming through customers that knew him because he'd been bagging their groceries. He wanted recommendations from them so he could use those recommendations when he went out searching for another job. Well, he never got that far. You know why? Because in the 10 days leading up to the store closing, he had four job offers from people who said, I've seen you here. I want you to come work for me. All the jobs were more money than he'd ever made in his life. And he was then simply choosing between the four opportunities that he had. You can still do that. However, if you're just looking for a job, you're just looking for somebody to hire you. You're going to go out and you're going to be convinced nobody's hiring. The economy's going down the tubes. We're in a recession. You believe all the crap you see on TV and reading a newspaper. Well, that comes as a result of not being clear in what it is you bring to the table in terms of unique value as soon as you do that. And and that's what you've got to do, Arthur. You've got to decide what is it that you do that does engage your passion and your talent. When you do that, then you'll be an attractive candidate. Somebody will say, I want you to be on my team. Brian from Albany, New York says, Dan, I've been working in a corporate management and training environment for the last 10 years or so. The parts of my job that I enjoy the most are conducting training and helping the employees that are supervised progress in the company. I'd really like to start my own business, focusing on career coaching and public speaking training. Do you think I should start by focusing on coaching or speaking? Thanks for your books, your podcast, and your time. Okay. You want to build your own business, focusing on career coaching and public speaking training. Do I think you ought to start with coaching or speaking? Yes. Yes. I think you ought to do both. Those go together really well. One will fuel the other. Don't narrow so much. Now, this may seem counterintuitive to what I talk about sometimes where I say I believe in niches. Don't be a generalist, be a specialist. But that's different. That's not what I'm talking about here. If you're a career guy, then you ought to be able to coach, to speak, to train, to lead workshops, to do audio programs, you know, to be a guest speaker at the Rotary Club. I mean, those are all things that fit together like a glove. So even though they're different, it's not being a generalist. You're very specific in what you do, but you're giving it multiple applications. That's exactly what I do at 48 Days to create multiple streams of income. And that, that addresses, incidentally, I, I mentioned earlier that at this next Right to the Bank event, I'm going to be going through 10 different ways to make at least $100,000 individually, not, not overall. I mean, if you did all 10, you'd make a million dollars, but I'm going to go through very realistic ways to take your skills as a career coach, as an example, what are 10 different ways that you can package that to make at least a hundred thousand dollars a year. So yeah, I think you ought to do both. It's not a matter of either or in this situation. Well, this is Dan Miller. 48 Days Online Radio. We aren't finished. That's just a transition here. Just want to remind you what you're listening to. Let you know if you've got a question, you can go to the 48days.com site. Click on the podcast link. Shoot your question in. Be happy to include that in an upcoming show. 
Well, Sarah from Huntsville says, Dan, the question for some, the question is, what's my passion? Luckily for me, I already am doing what I love, but as a volunteer, I'm wondering if there's a way to monetize this or does it need to stay a hobby as a domestic violence survivor? I feel called to give back by helping domestic violence victims heal emotionally, establish healthy boundaries, set goals, et cetera, at our local crisis center. Along the way, I've developed charts and checklists as handouts and feel these ideas could be expanded into a self-help book. I'm a high eye on the disc profile. I've had difficulty maintaining a blog and writing consistently. I prefer to work directly with people, but no others would benefit from my ideas. I would appreciate any suggestions you have that would help me knock it out of the park. Thanks for all you do. All right. In working directly with the victims of domestic violence, you may need to continue doing that as a volunteer. It may be difficult to monetize that. They're used to you doing what it is you're doing. And it may be difficult to see how can I get these people to pay? But now there's a whole lot of ways to monetize a valuable idea. I just spoke at Catawba College over in Salisbury, North Carolina. The reason I spoke there and was paid my fee is because they have an endowment from the Eli Lilly company, pharmaceutical company. They commit millions of dollars to help colleges with programs that will help students really discover their purpose and calling not just accumulate facts and knowledge, but really understand their purpose and calling. And my material is a perfect fit for that. I'm delighted to do that. Having said that domestic violence, are there organizations that really feel like there's a worthy cause there that would be willing to provide support for that? Absolutely. I mean, that's a perfect setup for the kind of things that a lot of grants are open to, you know, foundations, endowment, that are willing to provide funding for that. Now, the other thing that you can do there, and I think you could make a list of 20 ways that you can monetize your compassion and your affinity for working with domestic violence victims. You could train the trainer. So you could be somebody who trains others to do the kind of things that you have found so effective. You could like you are talking about, write a self-help book for victims and you could write a book for trainers for people who work in that arena. You could do workshops. I mean, there are, there are workshops done through an organization here in Nashville. It's called the center for nonprofit management. They do amazing workshops, but now the workshops aren't free. So if people who are wanting to work in domestic violence, come to a workshop, it may be $495 to come to a one day workshop. If you're the trainer there, you know, you can walk out with $3,000 at the end of the day because you did the training I mean, there are opportunities for those kind of training programs. So it's to training other people to do what you do. I mean, I've, I've done that with coaching, frankly, and I used to be booked solid five days a week coaching people. But as more and more people came to me and said, Dan, I want to do what you're doing. I want to coach like you're coaching others. It became obvious to me. There was a big opportunity for me to coach coaches so instead of having one person sitting in my office where we're creating a life plan for that person, now I can have 45 people sitting out here in the sanctuary in our meeting room where we're taking them through a two-day training program that they pay $1,000 a piece for. 
I mean, there's a lot of opportunity there and we've benefited from that opportunity a lot. You can do the same here, even if it is something that is, uh, tends to be connected with a nonprofit kind of arena, you can package it in a lot of ways to monetize it. Don't need to be embarrassed or apologize about that at all. Let me do one more here and we're going to wrap up. This comes from Chris, Connecticut. This question requires you, Dan, to put on your coaching hat, draw from your experience for 10 years. I run a small business, provides hands-on computer services for home users and other small businesses. It's fast paced, requires quick reflexes, has a lot of moving parts, means keeping many balls in the air at any given time. I also have the typical demands of my wife, children, house, and so on. Sometimes I get worn out from doing too much, too much going on. My question to you is this, when dealing with situations like mine, what tends to be the most effective situation to simplify my business or simplify my life so it's not so chaotic? Or to try to toughen up and not let the daily demands of the job take such a toll on me. Wow. Okay, that's a great question. And as in many situations, my encouragement is to look for and solutions, Chris, not either or. You can simplify, but what that may mean is just be more strategic about how you're using your time. Start with 168 hours in the week. Decide how much of that you want to devote to your business. Then do that with excellence. If that's 40 hours a week, fantastic. Do that. But then stick to that. So then you also know that you're going to dedicate, you know, one hour of uninterrupted time every evening with your wife and kids, you know, around dinner. And you're going to, on Saturdays, you're not going to allow business to interrupt with that. So you just strategically decide in advance how you're going to use your time. That's all we're talking about here. I'm not talking about compromising. I'm not talking about doing less in your business or doing less in your family. Neither should have to suffer. You should be able to expect excellence in both areas. And I really think you can do that just by being very strategic about how you spend your time. So that it's not just slipping out of your hands, but you decide in advance exactly how you're going to use it. Great question. Well, we're taking care of business. Thanks for being part of this community. Jump in the 48days.net group. There's a lot happening there. People who are taking charge of their lives, putting legs on their ideas. You can be part of that group. Let us know what you're doing, how you're approaching the goals that you have set for 2012, where you are on that path beginning of a year like we're still in here there's a lot of opportunity to see new things know that you're moving in that direction as you're finding or creating work that is meaningful purposeful productive and profitable